Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's evening. We are a collective of, of storytellers. We are the water cooler for this evening. Uh, my name is Oliver Page, and I'll be your host for the duration. Uh, the Water Cooler is a storytelling evening, a platform for people from all walks of life to tell their stories. Uh, some may be true, some may be imagined, and some may be, in the tradition of James Frey, a unique blend of both. Uh, our storytellers are given a simple brief to share something inspired by this month's chosen theme. Tonight, for our inaugural gathering, the theme is Deep, Dark, and Lost. Tonight, expect tales of tragedy, danger, fear, lies, and the twisted absurdity of daily life. <laughs> Which is something that I wrote down and now have just said out loud. <laughs> Who would have thought? The Water Cooler will be a monthly event held on every third Friday of the month, up here in the basement loft, where air conditioning is but a whisper of a myth held on the tongue of an angel. Uh, if you are in the audience tonight and you'd like to be involved uh, telling your own story, uh, we will accept anything. Um, uh, um, uh, no, but genuinely, uh, if, you, uh, if you have a story to tell and you want, to, uh, want a forum with which to tell it, then please um, uh, give your name to Sarah, who will be taking names at the end of the evening, um, so she can get in contact with you. And, um, and you can be up here sitting down and, 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 and reading to, to the assembled thousands. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, that's it. So, our f uh, without further ado, uh, our first storyteller this evening is Diane White. Di is a writer, and uh, she works with Just Speak, advocating for reform in our criminal justice system. She was recently involved in the incredibly successful revival of Verbatim here at the Basement Theatre and in Wellington. Uh, Di, some late oh, come in latecomers, please. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Sit down. There you go. Thank you. Just sit down. That's all right. If you're not paranoid, you're not thinking. Uh, <laughs> Di is a writer who works with Just Speak, as I said. <laughs> uh, she was recently involved in the incredibly successful revival of Verbatim here at the, ba at the basement, which was, which was completely remarkable, and is now playing, I believe, at, at, in Wellington. So if you happen to be in Wellington, please give it a look. And, and where? And, and Mungary, so please, go crazy. Um, Di White is also a three times bronze medalist in parallel parking and the, uh, and the last surviving veteran of the Crimean War. Ladies and gentlemen, Di White. low expectations and you're just like you know anyone anyone just come on up so we've we've got the, the dregs tonight to start with but um it's really cool to be here um i think um part of of growing up is realizing that every family has its secrets and some of those family secrets are buried deep um so deep in fact that they can be lost um a story or a person can be lost forever um from the family's consciousness and this is one of those stories. So this is a story about someone that you all know um, and that I'm related to, but someone that I didn't even know existed until a couple of weeks ago. Um, so my mum my mum comes from a really big family. She's one of ten children. Um, whenever I say that, people make that joke, oh, she, you know, what is it, an Irish Catholic family that doesn't believe in contraception? And I'm like, yep, that, that's basically what my mum's family is. And... Until a few years ago, I thought my mum's family was so normal and boring, um, 
all 10 children still in their first marriage or with kids living in successful houses and places, sorry, successful jobs and in houses and places like Tauranga and Napier and other nice places. There are a family of bankers, um, bankers who like to play golf and bankers that like to go fishing. And one of the first things I found out about my mum's family that maybe made me think that something was a little bit off um, was that I found out that my mum is not one of 10 children, but in fact one of 11 children. And the seventh child, the one before my mum and the family, um, died when she was born. And I think the tragic thing about this was that her name was, was Mary Catherine Casey, which is in fact the exact same name as my mum. Um, it was like she died and not only was her memory erased, but it was replaced. Uh, it wasn't like they did it out of honour to the late Mary. It was just that they wanted to pretend like she'd never existed. Um, and that kind of gives a hint as to, well, I was going to say how tight the lid is on my family, but kind of how fucked up, I guess, um, my mum's family really is. And this isn't a story about Mary Catherine, um, but it's in fact a story about someone else whose memory has been lost and erased from my family. It's the story of Margaret Hoffman, who lived on K Road. Margaret. <laughs> Margaret, yeah. So until very recently, that name didn't mean anything to me. Um, I'd visited, I lived in Wellington until recently, and I moved to Auckland um, in May last year, and I'd come to Auckland, but, you know, I had only sort of just um, come for a few weekends, and I didn't really know Auckland. I didn't know any of its people or its colourful personalities. Um, I'd never met Margaret. I had never been asked for a cigarette from Margaret. I never got told to fuck off by Margaret. <laughs> I didn't tweet or cry or read any news articles or anything when Margaret died. So Margaret was my second cousin, and until three weeks ago, I didn't even know she existed. Um, for me, learning about Margaret has been a bit like putting together a puzzle. Um, most of the pieces have come from newspaper articles and blogs and things like that, all written by people who knew Margaret far better than I or anyone in my family did. Um, people who would see Margaret every day and who owned shops outside which Margaret would stand. Um, you probably know, but Margaret spent about 30 years on K Road. And one of the things that Margaret, that made her so well known was that she didn't actually live on the street. She had a small little house in Parnell. And every day Margaret would catch the bus into, K, into town, into K Road from Parnell, and she'd catch the same 9am bus every morning, and she'd catch the same 5pm bus every day on the way home. And she'd stop in at her local butcher every night and buy a $2 lamb chop. So I found this one article that talked about Margaret's family, and it's so strange seeing the full names of family, mitten, uh, family members like written in, a, in an article like that. Um, Margaret was born Margaret Cook, and that was her parents were my great auntie Kath and my great uncle Arnold. Um, in the article, it described the Cooks as a disjointed bunch who really spoke to each other. Um, it said that to some, Margaret was an embarrassment, a taboo subject. In that week that followed Margaret's death, her family, our, our family, um, no, one, no one was to be seen. No one came to identify her. No one was there. One of the few family members that spoke to the media after Margaret died was Margaret's nephew, um, Jeff, uh, Jeremy. And Jeremy, like so many members of our family, never met Margaret. Um, in, in this 
this piece, he talked about how, how difficult it was to try and find anything out. His mother would just avoid the question when she was asked. And for me, reading about that culture of our extended family, um, the stiff upper lip, conform, um, or get the hell out kind of mentality, was almost as fascinating and devastating um, as reading about Margaret, um, if only for what that mentality did to someone like Margaret who didn't conform. And there's a few other little bits that I've been able to glean from extended family. Um, growing up, Margaret had been known to be a bit outside the square, um, a, a bit of a difficult teen. And at age 15, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, something that I can only imagine would have been seen as an embarrassment in my family's eyes. And she was kicked out of home. Um, great Auntie Kath, which is my grandfather's sister, and great Uncle Arnold um, both lived here in Auckland. And they were both alcoholics themselves. And they too had been effectively ostracised by the family, by my grandfather and his brother, my uncle, great uncle Terry. And, and when great auntie Kath died, my grandfather and my uncle Terry, they didn't even go to her funeral, um, their own sister's funeral. That was the culture of my family. So I called my mum to find out a bit more about Kath and a bit more about Margaret. Um, and my mum can only ever remember meeting her auntie Kath the once, and that was when my mum herself was married um, and all growing up. And my mum didn't even know, like me, that Margaret existed until after she'd died. And it was really scary how much my mum's words mirrored Jeremy's uh, in that article. Margaret was known within our wider family as an embarrassment, and no one talked about her. Um, I guess our family was a, a family where you pushed something under the carpet, even if that was a person, rather than talk about it. Um, so now... I've read so many articles about Margaret now, um, and so many of them talk about how she touched so many people's lives, and it's really weird seeing a public outpouring of grief about somebody in your family that you don't even know. Um, people saying that they burst into tears when they learned that she died, that they walked around feeling dazed and confused and lost um, for weeks after, after she died. And my family turned their backs on Margaret because she was different, but it makes me feel kind of warm to think that a whole community of people embraced her for that very reason. Um, I'm really sad I never met Margaret, and I'm really sad to think that quite soon after she died, I, I moved up to Auckland, and I lived just a couple of bus stops away from her. Um, but it also makes me happy to know that many people did, in, in a kind of unorthodox way, really care about her. And it makes me think about what other deep, dark, and lost stories lie in my family, and some of which, no doubt, I'll never know. But for now, I'm really grateful that I know about my cousin, Margaret. James, sit down, quick. You, you missed the best story about Margaret from K Road. Oh, it was good. Uh, thank you, Di. That was that was illuminating. That was that was amazing. I I had no idea. She was a she was so difficult for for those of us who tried to to get people to sign up to uh, uh, to the Red Cross on K Road. Um, so our next storyteller is Roma Moreau. He is a movie addict, a, a directing graduate of UniTech School of Performing Arts. Uh, perf sorry, performing and screen arts, and he's currently working in digital marketing and directing short films in his spare time. Roma Moreau also won last year's Nobel Prize for Head of Hair and hopes one day to die in a freak escalator accident. Ladies and gentlemen, Roma Moreau.
Yes. Thanks, Oliver. Okay, it's a hot and humid night. My shirt's sticking to my back. And uh, sorry, this is a story. This is not to my, my shirt. It's not sticking to my back. So, <laughs> so it's a hot and humid night, and my shirt is sticking to my back. Uh, sorry, just steal your other story for a bit. Uh, that's just a year ago. So if you just imagine me a year ago, kind of less wrinkles, no moustache. So, so it's a hot and humid night, <laughs> and my shirt is sticking to my back. And I'm walking in downtown Tokyo. And all around me, there's hundreds of people streaming along the footpaths. Their bustling activities just washed in this kaleidoscope of neon glows. And there's teenagers off to the side there, and there's, they've got slicked back hair and an American-style leather jackets. And then over to that side, there's, there's fruit vendors, and they're, they're calling out to the crowd and trying to get them to buy fruit, and they're standing next to giant piles of oranges. Everywhere there's activity. And I've ventured out on this evening to visit the fabled New York bar, which uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the film Lost in Translation. Has anyone? You guys have seen that? Yeah, yeah. It's a good film. It's where they shot most of the film Lost in Translation, and I, I decided I would go visit this bar. So I'm walking along, and I start to cross a large, it's a large six-lane street. And as I'm crossing, I notice there's something off, off the side there on the ground. And it's not until I approach and it comes into focus that I realize what it is. And I get a bit of a shock because down there on the side of the road, uh, on the painted lines that divide the two opposing lanes of traffic, and with cars driving past on either side, there's a man lying on the road. It's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and my first thought is just I just run over to him and see, see, if, see if he's okay. I crouch down and he's like an old man and he's got uh, gray hair when he's got flecks of white in the stubble that cover his chin. He's, he's conscious, and he's got, his, uh, he's got his face up, and he's looking forwards, but he's not saying anything. Come on in, guys. <laughs> Grab yourself a seat. All right, so, old man. Uh, and I'm looking at him, and he looks a mess. He looks awful, and I'm thinking, what would Bill Murray do? And so I get my sweaty palms and I just lift them under his armpits and incredibly do manage to like get him to his feet, which I'm feeling quite proud of, um, bodybuilder physique and all. Um, and, but he's standing up and as, as he stands up, he immediately starts to topple over again. And I realize this guy is really, really drunk. Um, now most of us have at one time or another had to help a, a drunk person get to where they need to go. And I've found the trick is generally to treat them like a, like a very spirited, if uncoordinated, dance partner. Um, <laughs> you want to make sure they're gliding along smoothly without upsetting their routine too much. And pretty much everything you've learned off watching Dancing with the Stars, you can apply here. So I've got, I've got my arms under him and it's kind of supporting his weight quite heavily. And we begin this kind of like shambling, but majestic waltz <laughs> across the tar seal. And it's going well, actually. We're making some pretty good progress. And I'm about halfway across. Uh, and then the smell kind of hits my nose. And I realize, it's really unfortunate, 
Um, this has been a cruel night to this guy. It's just chewed him up. It's spat him out onto the road there. Uh, he looks a mess. He's drunk. And uh, unfortunately, somewhere along the line, he's, he's lost control. And wow. yeah, he's, he's shat himself. Uh, and that's, that's terrible. Um, and at this point, I'd say, I'd say in sort of dancer terms, I'm about tango kind of distance from this guy. <laughs> so it's pretty intimate. Um, and also, like, around this time, that the traffic stops and everyone's having a good old look at what's going on. So I'm pretty committed. So we just go for it, and we manage to get through the last parts of the road, and then finally a young guy from the footpath comes and helps me. And together, we're able to lift this guy, carry him over to a ledge, and finally we sit him down. So we've made it, and it's fantastic. And after a short breather, I just give this guy a pat on the shoulder, and not really knowing what else to do, I just submerge myself back into the crowd, and carry on. And a couple of blocks away, I find this, this hotel, the Hyatt Park Hotel, and I ride two floors up, uh, sorry, eight, 80 floors up in two different elevators, uh, and I reach the New York bar, which is, it's magnificent. It's really beautiful. I'm listening to this amazing jazz playing. I'm sipping a single malt scotch. It's beautiful. Wow, it's so good. And there's an amazing view of the city in front of me. There's all these lights um, going out as far as the eye can see. And it's wonderful, and I can't enjoy any of it because I can't stop thinking about this old man. And I don't think this is a critique of Tokyo. I think this guy could have been in any city. Um, but the fact that he was in such a humiliating position in such a very public place, and no one saw him, like no one really saw him. And I, I just felt like his dignity was completely destroyed. I mean, I didn't even do that much. As soon as I was out of danger, I, I got out of there. And so I wanted to know his story, because I think knowing their story is what transforms a stranger into a, a real person. And so I was sitting there, and I decided to, I, I made something up. It didn't really matter that it wasn't true. I just wanted to remember this guy. So his name was Kiyoshi. And this is a letter he wrote to his wife. <laughs> My dear Haruko, <laughs> when we were young, we would take the train to the beach and walk along the shore. You in the bare feet, me in my shoes. I didn't like the sand. When I wasn't looking, you would pour sand into my pockets. You like to watch me, confused as I empty them at the train station. That became our mark, two little piles of sand on the platform. When did we grow old? You tell me off for talking too long to the young nurse. You say, pretty women is like plastic fruit. <laughs> they, they look tasty, but bad for digestion. <laughs> But since you left my side, I have been lost. I drink 
and the wonder, and the slowly I am drowning in this city. So I am writing you this letter. I'm going on a journey across all the stations of Tokyo. At every stop, I get off and I leave a handful. Haruko, you ask me, when we are gone, will there be any trace we ever lived here? When my journey is complete, a wind will breathe across all the stations of the city, brushing hundreds of little piles of sand. Their movement will exist because of us. Even if people do not see, the wind will show that we were here. <laughs> oh, that was exceptional. Um, for relaxing times, make it Suntory time. <laughs> um, our next storyteller up, uh, we have Phineas Tepet. Uh, he is a playwright with a pronounced Oedipal complex. Uh, and winner of uh, that, his his words essentially, um, and winner of an Australian uh, season of this year's Short and Sweet Festival, Phineas Tepet was also killed this year, saving his entire family from the wreckage of a sinking nuclear submarine. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Phineas Tepet. Good evening, all. I have some props here. Thank you, Anthony Oliver. <laughs> um, a, a lot of people say, and I'm sure you've all heard this before, Auckland is not a, a cultural city. This is not... It's, it's as I said, it's, it's, I'm sure you've heard it before. Um, I, I thought that myself for a long time. I'm going to tell you what changed my mind. But first, it's really, I think it's, it's one of those kind of meaningless, empty statements that people just say when they want to sound kind of perceptive. They say, I'm in New Zealand, Auckland is not a very cultural city. Just like, I'm sure we've all done it when if someone says they're depressed. If you meet someone and they say, I'm depressed, right off, I don't know if they say that off the bat. <laughs> but, um, and you say, I think, I think a lot of people think they're depressed when really they're just sad. And, <laughs> and you think, what an insightful, thing for me to say <laughs> and then they go I've, I've got a mental illness and uh, but um when people say yeah Auckland's not a cultural city it's one of those things and it's it's said with the same tone and I know it's the same tone because I've said it my whole life up until about a couple of months ago which is when I started finding these um little little bits of writing all around the city um you know little bits of, of culture if you will. And I've got a few of them here. I thought I'd just, I'm sorry to turn this into a poetry reading, but it's the first one, so I bet you didn't know what you were gonna get anyway. Um, okay, the, the first one here, I, I found it in Albert Park. I was sitting in Albert Park eating a Korean pancake. Yeah. I'm sure I, 
I'm sure I don't need to fill you on, fill you in on, on the pancakes of that wonderful country. Um, I was there, it was a ham, cheese and pineapple one because for some reason it's 50 cents cheaper than the other meat ones, so I always get it. Um, I was in Albert Park, I'd eaten my pancake, I had oil, bits of cheese all over my face and the beard, you can imagine. I, so I, I, I went to get the napkin that the, the middle-aged Korean man gave me at the shop to clean my face up, and I, I got it and I found it had a poem already written on it, and I thought, that's really cool. I'm not going to wipe it on my face. <laughs> and so <laughs> I had to go to class with like pancake oil all over my face. But it was okay because I preserved the poem. And I thought I'd just read it out. It's really cool. I, th I thought I'd give it an audience. It's called Public Relations. It's written on a napkin, so give me a second. A lady from the SPCA came up to me and talked, so I put a coin into her bucket and she left. A homeless man approached and mumbled, and I gave him 70-odd cents, and he left. A seagull came up to me, asking about my lunch, so I threw it a 10-cent coin, and it ate it and choked to death. <laughs> the homeless man came back and took the dead seagull away, and the SPCA lady cried a little bit. <laughs> I just thought... <laughs> I wish I could take some credit, but thank you. Uh, this next one... I found in a Woman's Weekly, the New Zealand version, uh, I was in a waiting room at an alternative medical practice in Grey Lynn. <laughs> I, I, obviously, I was not going there. I got a real doctor's, but I was, <laughs> I was supporting my friend who was going there, and so I was just sitting in the waiting room. It's not important, but she found a lump, and <laughs> she, she just she wanted to get it looked at. And while... I mean, it doesn't matter, because she just wanted the doctor to look at it, and he did. And um, this isn't important, but he just kind of, he kind of pushed it, and it, it went back in. <laughs> and it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> but um, while that was happening, I was in the waiting room, uh, flicking through Women's Weekly, and, and this little one fell out. Um, I, it's, it's only, it's a small poem. It's a really short one, I'll just read it. It's called A Non-Surgeon's Guide to the Cardiectomy. And that's actually, yeah, it's just that line. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know what a cardiectomy is. I guess it's some kind of surgical procedure to remove your heart. I don't know why I'd want to do that, but it was written on the back of this photo of a nice young lady, so I guess it's some kind of metaphor. I don't know. Um, this last, I've only got, I mean, I've got a few, but I was kind of pushed for time, so I've, this is my favourite, though. Um, it, I found it at the YMCA. Um, I, I go there every week to play soccer, uh, indoor, <laughs> indoor soccer, obviously. <laughs> um, this is an important, I don't know if you guys know the bathrooms in, in the YMCA up on Grey's Ave. It's not important, but you kind of, you have to descend into the ground and it's in kind of like a dungeon, like you descend into this chamber with stone walls, this is important, but I'll <laughs> stone walls and this little, this thin strip of windows up along the top of one wall. And um, it's not important, I just thought, anyway. Um, I was there by myself, I was going for a wee before the game. 
And... <laughs> I, I was there alone. I always am for some reason. I don't, I don't think anybody knows they're down there. But I was in the bathrooms alone. And I was standing at the urinal and I, I unzipped my fly. And suddenly I heard this noise, this kind of fizzing, crackling noise behind me. And so slowly, it was this way, so I turned around. Slowly I, I turned around and saw at about kind of head height, a couple of meters away, this isn't important, but these two really bright blue orbs <laughs> floating really really bright blue with kind of like static static electricity or something shooting out just hovering there and i i kind of i stared at them for a few minutes and i don't know if they were looking back at me because they were perfect spheres so they could have been facing any different way i don't know <laughs> but i just kind of stood there and I, after a few minutes they started slowly drifting towards me I was, I was so scared, I was paralyzed, I couldn't move or anything. Always, that's what paralyzed means. <laughs> and they kind of came up towards me and then drifted past and then went down the whole row of urinals. This isn't important, but they just, and then they popped up at the end and went out the window onto the street. And um, <laughs> anyway, I reached into my back pocket, I found this poem. I don't, I don't know how, it's the same handwriting as the other ones. I don't know how, it, I've no memory of it getting there whatsoever. Um, this one's got two titles. I'll just, it's my favorite one though. Uh, it's called, Why Do I Do What I Do? Or, Ode to a Vietnamese Restaurant Menu. And I don't know if you guys know what a palindrome is. It's, yeah, it looks like a word or a phrase. It's the same if you read it backwards or forwards. Like kayak or taco cat. That's a good one. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Please. Um, ode to a Vietnamese restaurant menu. It's just a short one. How many of the poets that you know can write a whole poem in a six-line palindrome? M O T N I L A P N I L Z S A N I Meo pelo huai tir wanak wan koi tat seo pet foi namo. It's the same if you read it forwards or backwards. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's really quite brilliant if you think about it. Anyway, these are some poems that I found, and I, I thought if <laughs> maybe if, if people who think that there's no there's no culture in Auckland. If something like this happened to them, then they'd stop saying it and, and we could just move on with things. <laughs> and uh, those are the poems that I found. Thank you very much. Phineas Tappet. <laughs> I'm that irritating guy who laughs in the in the uh, on the recording, who nobody wants to listen to laugh. Um, our next storyteller is uh, Kirsten Taylor. She is a writer, a musician, a world traveler, and now studies occupational therapy at AUT. 
Kirsten Taylor is also known for having turned to cannibalism after the plane carrying her Uruguayan rugby team crashed in the Andes. Ladies and gentlemen, Kirsten Taylor. Ah, oh, this is really fun. I, I didn't know it was monthly, but now I'm happy. I just found out a friend of mine in Melbourne has decided to celebrate her period every month with, um, <laughs> with a trip to the local pub to eat kangaroo. <laughs> I think that's cool. Um, <laughs> uh, this, this story is made up. Pleasant Bay. Eileen and Jack have been coming to Pleasant Bay for 13 years. They always arrive on Boxing Day, and on the Friday before Jack goes back to work, they go home. Except five years ago when they were invited to a barbecue at their son's place, and they ate the strange potato salad with vinegar and gherkins instead of mayonnaise, the one that their daughter-in-law made. And Sally got her leg caught in the springs of the trampoline before it all went wrong with the family. That year, they arrived with their caravan on the 27th. Jack is adjusting the guy ropes of the awning. He stops only when the lines of canvas colour are straight and neat. Eileen sits at a blue plastic table and plasters hamburger buns with an even coat of margarine. She wears a stretchy dress, black and orange patterns like roadwork signs. She fingers her wiry grey ponytail, licks her lips and looks out at the water. Beer, Jack? she asks. Yeah, ta, Eileen. Jack returns the hammer to the toolbox in the camper and Eileen extracts herself in angles from the table. She hands Jack a can from the blue chili bin and opens her copy of Woman's Day. Jack sits on the steps of the caravan, smokes a cigarette and studies the tide charts, making markings with a stubby little pencil. Eileen frowns at him. He shouldn't be smoking under the awning. Halfway through the crossword, she says, No sign of Layla and Jerry yet. Usually they've arrived by now. Hmm. Went somewhere else this year, maybe. He got a promotion, you remember. Might be in Fiji. At the crunch of tyres on gravel, Jack and Eileen both look up. They watch as a glossy black bus approaches and passes their sight. There's dust in the air. The bus, large as an intercity, has curvy gold letters painted on the back. The Voyager. The Voyager jolts to a stop 20 metres up the road and is smoothly reversed next to Jack and Eileen's camper van. It takes up three campsites. Have they paid for three campsites? Wonders Eileen. Oh, would you look at that monster of a thing, Eileen? <laughs> wow, Layla and Jerry won't be happy when they see we've let someone take their spot. Will they, she says. They won't be at all pleased. Eileen licks her lips again. The door of the bus hisses as it opens. 
Eileen and Jack wait. Then they watch as a tall woman with a short blonde haircut descends the steps. G'day, she says. I'm Dinah. That's Mike. Great spot you've got here. We've never been up this way before. Dinah stands for a moment, rubs the back of her neck, and then steps under the awning to shake Eileen's hand, and then Jack's. Mike emerges from the driver's side and grins at his wife, and then he grins at Eileen and Jack. Great spot. Hey, give us an hour or so to sort ourselves out and then join us for a bite to eat in the bus. Dinah's going to make salmon sushi. She got the kit for Christmas. Though neither Jack nor Eileen enjoy sushi, they say, Yes. Ah, oh, thank you. Great. Eileen tidies the pile of burger buns into a plastic bag and coats her thin lips with pink lipstick. In the Voyager, Jack's six-pack sweats on the table. Jack runs his finger along and up and down each can. He wipes the water from his fingers onto his shorts. On the felt wall, which separates the dining area from the driver's seat, there hangs a small corkboard. Daggered to the corkboard with golden pins are several pictures of Mike and Dinah with four tanned young people, two men and two women. Mike speaks of the tanned young people, the kids. He speaks of his job as a spine surgeon at Auckland Hospital. Eight more years and I'll be able to retire, he says. Then Dinah and I are going to head over to Oz and travel round in a bus there, aren't we, Dal? Dinah wants to do Europe, the canals, don't you, Dal? But she can do that without me in the meantime. Not interested. <laughs> you been to Europe? No? So, Jack, what do you do? Jack notices Mike's hand resting there on Dinah's thigh. Jack's finished his plate of sushi, which he ate with his fingers. Eileen tried to use the chopsticks at first, but settled eventually for an alternative technique. She now stabs each piece with a single chopstick and, tilting her chin, dangles each round deposit into her wide mouth, which is the same way that I do it. <laughs> Jack says, I'm a plumber. Been with the same company since my apprenticeship. It's a good job. Eileen's a cook. Rest home right near your hospital, actually. She did 10 years of Christmases and New Year's before they'd let her off. Bloody bastards. <laughs> Maybe you could make the oldies sushi when you go back next week, Eileen. <laughs> Bet they'd love that. He stops takes a sip of beer and then drops his hand heavily into Eileen's lap. Eileen studies him a moment and then licks her lips and says that she's feeling tired from the trip. She's off to bed. Thank you for the sushi. When she goes to get up, the backs of her legs stick painfully to the vinyl cushions around the table. There is a thin river of sweat where she's been sitting. But Eileen doesn't go to bed. She finishes the crossword flips through her magazine twice more and waits for Jack to come back from the bus. When Jack returns, 
He reaches under Eileen's dress and tries to kiss her. Eileen pushes him away and says, you took your time over there. She returns to the narrow padded seat at the front of the caravan and sits with a cushion in her lap. She faces the water and stays up late. The small glowing lights of a cruise ship float from one side of the bay to the other side and then the lights lean behind the cliffs and out of sight. When Eileen eventually slips into bed next to Jack, she dreams seasick dreams of a hospital. A hospital inside a cruise ship where the lino corridors are paved with stepping stones of sushi, ruptured rings of sushi with the rice clumped outside of the seaweed skin like herniated discs. She steps from disc to disc, squashing them as she goes, and then Mike is there, putting his hand up her dress. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the water cooler. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our speakers.